welcome to Tales Ahoy. This podcast series from Orkney, Scotland, will transport you to the dark, enchanted island of Hoy, where a valley of voices will take you on a walk through time and place. This final journey completes our circle, taking the new road. Meet the men who built the road and hitch a ride on the first motor car. Beware the supernatural creatures of the Trawy Glen and stop at the enigmatic Dwarfy Stone, where Hugh Miller carved his name. Welcome the return of the sea eagles, play with children at the old school, and end up back with us at the Hoy Kirk Heritage Centre. The new road runs from Brackwick on the west coast of Hoy through the valley past the Dwarfy Stone to Quinas. Although it's called the new road, it's been around for nearly a hundred years. This metal road replaced the peat track, now known as the old road. Given the condition and limitations of the old road, it's no wonder Rackwick community had felt cut off. In 1905 there was a petition raised and signed by all the residents requesting the need for a new road. The Arcadian picks up the case in a 1923 article. When the Land Court met to consider cases from Rackwick, the state of the Rackwick Road is the subject of much humorous complaint and comment. The existing peat track winds its awful way, and an awful way it is. Practically every commodity is born in large bundles upon the barks, it is freely admitted, of the women, save when an occasional ox wagon traverses the track. Rackwick residents wanted to keep the route of the old road and improve it. However, the owner of Hoy, Thomas Middlemore, chose the route of the new road to follow the easier inclines on the south side of the Ward Hill, passing the Dwarfy Stone. A section of the road is known by some as the Bray of the Hut, taking its name from a wooden building used by the road workers. If you look along the side of the road, you can see small quarries where the builders took their material. My grandfather, James Flett, was born in North Biggin, in Harry, in 1876. He was successfully tendering and building roads for the county. His best-known road was the Rackwick Road, which was built in the summers of 1926 and 27. Some of the older children were also employed. The girls as crooks and his eldest son, Jim, on building the road. As the road was built on the side of the hill, he had to make 100 drains to allow the water to drain off the hill. It is still in constant use today, nearly 100 years later. He continued to build and repair the Orkney roads for many years. He kept his gelatinite night and fuses in their bedroom on a shelf above his large desk. After his death, his son Eric discovered them still there and the police were called in to dispose of the dangerous material. 
It was reported that the poor policeman who came down the stairs was very white in the face. The creation of the new road caused quite a stir, as this article from the Arcadian reveals. Pushbikes are in great demand and all the young chaps are busy after their work is done learning to ride. Mr and Mrs Begg of Kirkwall were the proud owners of the first motor car to visit Rackwick, but it proved a somewhat unlucky trip. Something went wrong with the works and the motor stopped. Not a yard could it be induced to go at any price and it is well known there are no repair garages in Hoy. There was nothing for it but to hire Albert Wick of Burnmouth with his horse and tow the car 15 long miles through the hills from Hoy to the south side of Long Hope. Here the car was shipped to Strumness while the horse was ridden home. It was a rather inglorious ending to this history-making tour and the Ratwick folk are sticking to their carts and oxen for a while till the sea, so they say anyway. Since right in the above we learn that the only three motor vehicles that have ever been on this road have all come to grief one way or another. What can be wrong with a Ratwick road? Best play safe and continue on foot. Hundreds of runners have followed this route as they made their way from Rackwick to the North Walls School for the Hoy Half Marathon. Not your fastest half marathon, the organisers say, but probably one of the toughest and most scenic. At the foot of Nout Bull, a large glacial corrie cut into the side of Ward Hill, is a World War II searchlight installation. Just by the road, this extensive site consists of a circular bank around a central concrete pad that supported the searchlight, air raid shelters, concrete hut bases and a possible magazine. Most are visible as low earthworks in the heather. Searchlight emplacements are rare as they were often flattened or ploughed out after the war, and this is a fine example. The echo of planes and machine gun fire down the valley and into the glens must have been quite a sound. Jack Rendell remembers that the emplacement was known as Death Valley to the army engineers due to its remoteness. Bleak as it may have been, this emplacement formed part of the defences for Scapa Flow and protected the naval fleet from air attacks through the hills. At the bottom of the valley, near the burn, there is a large natural mound with a secret. It contains a stone-lined cavity cut into the top which could have housed an illicit still. Another suggestion is that it was used to hide pigs. Before the new road was built, this would have certainly been a very secluded place. The nap of the Trowy Glen is just over 1300 feet high and the highest hill to the south of the Rackwick Valley. A deep glen cuts down its northern side home to a raging burn that cascades onto the valley floor. But the name of this glen tells another story. 
The trows in Orney are the fairy folk. They usually live in mounds and they're magical, but people often try to avoid them whenever possible. There was a man called Mancy Rich who lived at Rackwick and he had to go to Long Hope one day on business, but he wanted to get back early because it was an uncanny place and he didn't like going past it in the daytime, yet alone at night because that was the home of the trows, the fairy folk. Now he left a bit later than he had intended and so it was getting dark when he was walking along past the dwarfy stain and he found himself being drawn by some irresistible force. And as he walked along towards it, he seen that he wasn't alone because there was lots of tiny peedy folk walking along with him, no bigger than about a foot high, little fairy folk. He went halfway up the Trowy Glen and there was a cave with light pouring out of it. And he was stopped by a trow there and told to wait. Now, after a bit, he was beckoned to come inside. He was absolutely terrified, but he didn't want to show it. So he went in and was told that he had to wait for himself to see him. Now, inside the cave, it was a beautiful, beautiful place with tapestries on the walls. There was carpets on the floor with wonderful furniture, beautifully carved and inside there was a dance in full swing. He was led into a small chamber and two trows came out carrying a throne. They set it down and then another came out and this was himself. And he was a bit taller than the rest. He was about 18 inches tall, dressed in pale blue velvet and with a blue turban on his head. And he said to Mansi, well, Mansi boy, do you know who I am? No, said Mansi, but I'm no scared of you, he lied. Ha ha ha, I'm himself, I'm the head chill here in the Trowy Glen. And before you come into my land, you have to have a passport with my name on it. But you can get that no bother. But I'll tell you what, will you take a cog of heather ale with me? Oh, that I would. So Mansi was given a cog of heather ale, magic beer. And he drank it and it was so good. And he was tingling all over and he was starting to feel a lot more comfortable and happy now. And then he was led into where the dancing was. And he tried to dance with the little trowy women, but they were too small for him. They would run between his fingers. Now he was drinking away and he was feeling so at home. He asked himself if he minded if he smoked. Smoked, said himself. What do you mean by that? Well, I'll show you. So he took out a clay pipe and he filled it with tobacco. And all the trows gathered around to watch this because they'd never seen anything like it before. And he lit his pipe and he tossed his head back and he blew out a big cloud of smoke. But then a terrible thing happened because all the little trows started to cough and splutter and they started to faint, fall down to the ground. And the last one to be overcome by the fumes was himself. And when he collapsed down on the ground, suddenly everything went dark. And the next thing that Mansi knew, he woke up inside the Trowy Glen in front of a rabbit hole and not a trow in sight.
Nestled deep in the valley between the Ward Hill and the Dwarfy Hammers lies one of Britain's most enigmatic sites. Known as the Dwarfy Stone, from a distance it appears unremarkable, a huge block of sandstone brought by some travelling ice sheets millions of years ago. But get closer and you'll discover something quite amazing. Here's archaeologist Antonia Thomas. The Dwarfy Stone is unique in Britain and it's certainly one of Orkney's most important prehistoric sites. This solid block, this glacial erratic of rock, is eight and a half metres long. In a time long before metal or machines, tools made from stone and antler were used to painstakingly hollow out the inside. A chamber was created with two compartments, one of which has a pillow cut into one end. If you look carefully, you can still see the marks from the original tools which carved out this stone. Its first mention dates from 1529, when a traveller known as Joe Ben visited Orkney. He pronounced the Dwarfy Stone as the home of a giant and his pregnant wife. In the original story, it said it was the work of giants, but they must have been very small giants. It's definitely the home of a dwarf. And it was the home of a dwarf and his wife. And he had hollowed out this fine hole for himself. Now his wife was pregnant, and so if you look inside, you can see his bed is at the one side with a stone pillow. And at the other side, the wall is scooped out into a curve. And that was to accommodate his wife's pregnant belly. But he had a rival. Another dwarf on the island envied him and wanted his haul. And so one night he waited until the two of them were in bed and asleep, and he was up on the top of the ward hill, and he fitted a huge stone to a sling, and he fired it at the entrance to the stone, and it fitted it exactly, and it plugged it up, sealed the dwarfs in there, and then he was going to wait until they died and then pull out the stone and clear out the bodies and he would have the hole to himself. But the dwarf that was inside punched a hole right through the roof and he set off running after his rivals and he chased them all over the islands. For all I know, they might be running yet. In the 18th and 19th centuries, graffiti was not considered the vandalism it would be today. Many visitors felt compelled to leave their mark at the Dwarfy Stone. The earliest carving is by H. Ross, 1735, a factor for the Melsetter estate, whose name is carved on the pillow next to that of a P. Folster, a local hoy carpenter who left his mark in 1830. Another name can be found dated 1846. This is Hugh Miller, one of the leading geologists of the 19th century. The pillow I found lettered over with the names of visitors. With my geological chisel and hammer, I did, to beguile the time, what I very rarely do, added my name to the others in characters which, if both they and the dwarfy stone get but fair play, will be distinctly legible two centuries hence. In what state will the world then exist? Or what sort of ideas will fill the head of the man who, when the rock has well nigh yielded up its charge, will decipher the name for the last time and inquire, mayhap, 
regarding the individual whom it now designates, as I did this morning, when I asked, Who was this H. Ross? And who this P. Falster? Another visitor, Major William Mounsey, carved a Star of David above a back-to-front Latinized version of his name and the date A.D. 1850. Below this, and most curiously of all, he carved in Arabic a script which reads, I have sat for two nights and found patience. The Dwarfy Stone has never been the subject of detailed archaeological study. Although some texts have claimed that it was an early monk's hermitage, this seems unlikely. A blocking stone indicates that it was meant to be sealed rather than regularly entered. This fact and its similarity to monuments elsewhere in Europe have led to its interpretation as a rock-cut tomb, a burial place dating to the late Neolithic period, around 3000 BC. Giants have once more returned to the Dwarfy Stone. High up on the cliffs behind the rock-cut tomb, giant birds have started nesting. The white-tailed or sea eagle has returned to Hoi. Now we are delighted to see these birds of prey. But there was a time when eagles were despised, as this story about the Hoi minister reveals. Mr Hamilton was disturbed by a loud squeaking. He advanced to the spot and immediately perceived one of his pigs struggling vainly in the talons of an eagle. There is at present a man living in Orkney who was seized when a child by an eagle and was carried a little distance. When the bird, becoming alarmed, dropped him, having but little injured him. Mr Hamilton was more successful in another instance, in inflicting punishment on one of these depredators. An eagle had so effectively entangled his claws in the back of a sheep that he could not disengage himself, and afforded Mr Hamilton the opportunity of killing him with a stick. Although white-tailed eagles were once a common sight in Orkney skies, the birds were persecuted to UK extinction in the early 20th century, with the last bird shot on Shetland in 1918. Thanks to a successful RSPB partner reintroduction programme beginning in the 1970s, the birds are once again established and doing well in Scotland. In 2013, a young pair of white-tailed sea eagles took up residence in Hoy and although too young to nest at that stage, there was much excitement because the last pair to nest in Orkney at that point was in 1873. In 2015, when the pair built their first nest, they became Scotland's 100th pair of sea eagles, and a testament to the success of the reintroduction programme on the west and east coast of Scotland. Unfortunately, they failed to breed successfully during the 2015 and 2016 seasons. Although this isn't unusual for a young, inexperienced pair, the established pair went their separate ways in 2017 and the female found a new mate. The pair had success in 2018 with two chicks hatched, being the first of their species hatched in Orkney for 145 years. Local school children love to get involved, 
The chicks were named Bako and Craggy by the pupils at North Walls Community School. The pair had another good season in 2019 with one chick fledged successfully and this one was named by the school children as Grisella. The 2020 season went well and two more chicks were fledged. So that's five young in three years, which is a great start to Orkney's new white-tailed eagle population. To the east of Ward Hill, straddling the Warness Burn, is a substantial prehistoric settlement. A heather fire in the early 1980s revealed a hidden prehistoric landscape. A large enclosure, defined by a bank and stone walls, contains the remains of prehistoric houses and fish weirs. Around the main enclosure, smaller enclosures, banks, mounds and earthfast stones were evident. Further away, these eventually submerge into the peat. Thought to be Bronze Age in date, this sort of enclosed settlement is not found elsewhere in Orkney. Since the fire, the vegetation has grown back considerably and the site is now completely overgrown. Rounding the northern side of the Ward Hill, the road once again crosses the old Hilldake as it traverses the slope from Oregon down to the Bay of Quays. The farms and regular fenced fields at Quines along the coast were the new homes to tenants from Brebester, who were moved here following the land improvements in the late 19th century. Follow the top road and you'll eventually reach Hoy Hall. Quiet now, it was once alive with music and dances. Well, I think Catherine, Jack's sister, was one of the main instigators of getting this going, probably in the early 70s. On a Saturday evening, everybody would, uh, you know, assemble and we'd probably play cards first, I think. And then we would have tea and biscuits. And after that, the chaps would play darts and uh, then we would end up with bingo. And that was really very popular and the kids loved that as well too. And the laird was very keen, this is um, Malcolm Stewart. Um, he enjoyed, uh, you know, sort of mixing with the, you know, his folk, if you follow what I mean. Because I know when he came and saw our house when it was renovated and ha had a big extension on, uh, he said, oh, this would make a lovely dance hall, he said. <laughs> Most recently, it was used for the Hoy shows annual agricultural shows of poultry and produce. This now happens around the outdoor centre. What is now Hoy Outdoor Centre and Hostel was once a smaller building, the Hoy School. In 1960, all the schools on the island were amalgamated into one school in North Walls Linus. The school building here and in Rackwick both became youth hostels. That was when you had the old coal-fired range, what used to be the classroom. That had beds in it for 12 people. And then the bedrooms that was in what was the house, just the eight in there, so just had the 20 all together. It was the iron beds, just the old-fashioned type of beds that they had. They didn't get sheets, but they had army-type blankets at that time. After Isaac gave up the hostel, he gave up uh, both Hoy and Rackwick, I took it on and I did it for about five years. The hostel was the school, 
to start with. And then, of course, Isaac got it turned into a hostel. And then after that, when the council ran it, they decided that they needed to have more room. They then added the extension to it and turned it into an outdoor centre. Now a site of recreation was once a seat of learning. But in that day, it was home and then my school. Nothing in between. And uh, oh, then at the school, of course, there's the usual, usual hijinks back and forth. The school really consisted of two classes. It was a single room, a fire in the middle, the teacher had a desk, there were rows of desks, and Maggie Thompson was the teacher, and she would come round to see how we're getting on. We started up with all the slates and all, slate pencils and slates again, and they'd bring up a, a bottle of usually deadly water, cork, corkscrew with holes in the top for dusting on to wash the, the powder off the slate then. After that, Jotters come in, of course, which was a great lift up again, they came, and I think we got new desks about that same time as well. Every desk had two inks, one for each person, and uh, we did this script writing, and it was we to just follow the dotted lines, do proper writing. Lessons with the reading, writing and spelling, of course, and then with the history lessons as well, and geography. And I'll tell you, there's a thing too I noticed particularly, Mrs. Thompson, the Rackwick, the Rackwick School, I think it was three, three pupils at that time. When they came into the lessons, I noticed they were exceptionally strong on saying poetry and all. We said poetry too, but not to the same extent. But I found the Rackwick Burns were extremely good at poetry and things, haha. Uh I lived in King's House, which was right next to the school, and there was a small gap in the dike, and I used to climb over that and go to visit Margaret. She was the teacher's daughter. James I and Morgan and Tommy Moore were all in the same class. Now, you would have thought that she would have been a very good girl at school, but she wasn't. And um, we, we were given homework. It had to be handed in, so Maggie said, children, let me have your homework now. So James and I went up with our homework. Then there was a voice, um, Margaret, where's your homework? What do you mean you haven't done it? James and Donnie were able to do their homework. And they're boys. Girls do far better than boys at doing homework. And you haven't done yours. This is bad. And anyway, we got outside and I got a, well, there was two of us to go a biff to, but I was a smaller one, so Margaret gave me a biff. And uh, later on, she made me marry her. Well, that would have been about 50 years later. <laughs> Sitting below the Ward Hill, Hoy Kirk was built to replace the old Kirk by the shore and was completed in 1892. It served Hoy Parish and included Rackwick, a long walk for the valley parishioners. In January 1952, a hurricane hit Orkney. Wind speed went off the scale but informed opinion estimates winds up to 135 miles per hour. The heavy sea and high winds caused the entire disappearance of one of the block ships in Borosong, while portions of the Hoy Hall roof 
were blown to Gramsci. Damn the hurricane right enough. A lot of folk lost their crop and things in the sea, different things as well. I mean, doing a garrison there, uh, a stack of abuses and the edge of the pier. I don't think he hardly does a stack left in the morning at all, you can. A lot of henhouses were blowing the sea and hens still sitting on the top and different things, you can. It's just more or less decimated the poultry industry in Orkney at that time, you can. It'd be the big industry before that, you see. And they said in Gramsci there, the gear, idea of the force of the wind, the piece of felt was lodged, sliced in through the side of the neap, you can. So after blowing across the soon, there was still that amount of, of carry on, you can, yeah. The carquery was quite badly damaged, a hole up on the roof there. And the rain got in and plasterboard was peeling down and different things. And of course, once the slits are broken or a hole's in, they usually peel off. It's about, well, about a hundred miles an hour, just go on the at the time. It's just mayhem inside here, more or less, you can. And I mind us up with the boys, we were 10, 12 years old at the time, me and my brother and some of the other parents here as well. Eh, Coping up the, the hymn books and all you can. And I would say, joke, but I'm there in here. Now, boys, remember, you're in the house of the Lord, no, treat all that, we respect them things you can. They're both us at the time. Oh, yes, yes, we'll do. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was a few days before we ever got the school open, and certainly a while before the, before the car here was uh, reconstructed again after it, you can. The damage to the Orkney economy was huge. The egg industry was devastated with more than 86,000 hens lost. In Hoy, the kirk was badly hit. The minister wrote to Buckingham Palace to ask for help raising funds for repair. Queen Mary sent a tapestry that she had made herself, which was then exhibited in Glasgow and Edinburgh. The fundraising was a success and the kirk was restored. Nearly 40 years later, the community were needing to fundraise again. Couldn't have possibly visit Rackwick without coming to see Jack Render. So, Jack, I thought you'd maybe tell us a wee bit about this restoration of the Kirk in Hoy. Well, it's on its second phase now, and we hope to have it all ready for a summer school in the back end of the summer. How's it going for funds? Are you kind of not so bad for money? Well, we have enough to pay for the second stage, but we, we're still a we very grateful for any more help we can get. We, we, there's a few windows that would still need to be strengthened and one or two extras. But uh, hopefully by the end of the summer the major repairs will be done. How far back does the building date? Well, it's almost 100 years old. I think it was 1892 that it was finished, so it's uh, almost it's three years short, so it's 100 years. And what's so special about this building? Well, it's the, I wouldn't say there's anything special about it, it's just, the, as you can not always isolate it for the rest of the, and the folk wanted, didn't like to see their kirk being shut down, and uh, we're pretty far, well, about 10 or 12 miles away from the other kirk. Jack, we'll wish you luck on, uh, with the project and hope that the funds keep rolling in until you get the work completed. Thanks very much, Angus, and we'll uh, try our best, and we're certainly looking forward to, to having something Go on, you can. It helps to keep the building going, and it helps to keep the a bit of life in the north end here. A bit of heart in the community. That's right. That's very true. Thanks again, Jack. Cheerio, no. Cheerio. After operating as a kirk for over a century, in 2003, the community had some news. 
the Church of Scotland decided that they no longer needed the Hoy Kirk and they were eager to get rid of it in some way and we formed a committee at the time and started negotiating with them. I'm a great believer in tube spirit and whilst we were raising funds to buy it from the Church of Scotland we had five concerts a year. And uh, after a year or two it was successful and we arranged with the Church of Scotland to take over the Kirk and uh, we've gone on from there. Rebecca Marr is Hoy Heritage Officer. Hoy Kirk has been many things to many folk. Its former life as a church still echoes with occasional services being held, along with weddings and funerals. Sir Peter Maxwell Davis held the Hoy Composers School here over several years. In an echo of that, music events such as St Magnus Festival Night still happen here. There is a vibrant arts programme of events, social evenings and heritage nights. Hoy Kirk is an echo, now a heritage centre that reverberates with the stories about the people of the parish, held here to preserve and share them. The folders on the shelves represent individual islanders' interests, be it shipwrecks, weather or the old man of Hoy. Displays celebrate the artists who found inspiration in Hoy, the Dwarfy Stone and the botanist from the Boo. There is a library of natural history books to browse and an RSPB room. The door is always open. Tradition holds that parishioners from different areas use different doors to enter the kirk. Choose your door, come in and make yourself a cup of tea and browse. If you can't make it in person, join us at the Hoy Heritage website. We hope that some of the echoes that you've heard in these tales of Hoy stay with you.